so you're no longer a screenwriter. Um, I call myself a recovering screenwriter. <laughs> Just like if you're a recovering alcoholic, you don't say I'm a recovered alcoholic because nobody's totally recovered, but I try really hard to resist temptation. I've, I've actually, I left screenwriting in 1984. I didn't like being a screenwriter in Hollywood. They treat you really badly. Although I had some success, I had some features made, and I did about nine or ten TV specials and documentaries, and I won a Writers Guild Award. And I decided to quit when I, I won the Writers Guild Award for the uh, AFI Salute to John Houston, and I got a, an Emmy nomination at the same time for the Gish, Lillian Gish tribute. And uh, I got vested for a pension all at the same time, and I decided this is a great time to quit, you know, go out on top. <laughs> And then I'm a much happier person because I, I like writing books more, and that's what I've been doing since 1963. And I thought, well, let's just focus on writing books because I enjoy this. You should do what you like best in life and where people treat you well. So I was writing a biography of Frank Capra, which was a big job. You know, it took seven and a half years. And I wrote a another book recently about the travails I went through writing that book because I had four years of legal battles to get the book published you know it was a lot of people tried to stop that book and it was in some ways worse than what I'd gone through in Hollywood but I prevailed because in Hollywood the writer will never prevail but in, in book publishing the writer can prevail it had a happy ending I got the book published by Simon & Schuster after um, Random House my original publisher tried to stop it and Capra's archivist Janine Basinger at Wesleyan University tried to stop the book and they were in cahoots my own publisher and the archivist were in cahoots to either kill my book or neutralize the book or edit it and take out a lot of the political material. And I won, got it to Simon & Schuster and they were, um, they had integrity and they stood by it and it did well. And so I wrote this book called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra recently about that Kafkaesque struggle to get the book out. But I, I really have enjoyed writing many books since then. And then I got the job teaching in 2000, which was really, I enjoy that a lot too. I like working with uh, young people and and uh, sharing my knowledge and learning from the students and and sharing my enthusiasm. So, and, and the great thing about teaching too, you can write books on the side and, you know, at night and on weekends and in the summer times, et cetera. Do you have any, um, like, dream stories in your, in your bank that you would ever... Uh dive back into screenwriting again? Well, I try to repress them. I had a good idea for a screenplay a few years ago, and I thought I will repress this because <laughs> I don't want to do it because yeah. it's such a horrible occupation. But I, I did um, I did sort of weaken a little bit. I, I did a couple of things over the years. I wrote a uh, uh, TV special on war movies for the AFI in the 90s to help finance my John Ford biography. And then a few years ago, I was talking to somebody at Sony, and they were in, releasing some Gene Arthur movies, and she's my favorite actress. And I said, you should do a documentary on Gene Arthur. And he said, hey, that's a great idea. So I wrote a treatment on that. I broke my rule, and they turned it down. Uh, I don't know why, but, you know. Uh, and then I also did a treatment on Seven Women, the John Ford film, which I'm trying to get restored. It's owned by Warner Brothers now, and I'm trying to get um, six minutes put back into the film and I had some friends of mine and I we were going to do a documentary to go along with it and we got Sue Lyon to agree to be in it and she never did those things 
uh, and she was in that film and she was she liked it so much and she agreed to be in the film and then we had other people in mind and I wrote a treatment on that and, and Warner said well if you guys make this film on your own for no money uh, we'll let you put it on the DVD and I, we all my two partners quit at that moment and like an idiot I said well I'll try and I actually figured out a way we could make this for no money and then I thought, why am I doing this? Warner Brothers had just opened Inception, and they made $150 million that weekend, and they can't afford, you know, 25000 or 40000 40, to make a documentary or something. Forget it. Yeah. But, you know, I hope we get seven women released, but unfortunately now we can't. We could, we could still do a documentary, and I still work on documentaries. I mean, I've, I've co-produced some documentaries over the years, and I've been a consultant on some, and I'm interviewed a lot for documentaries. It's not like I'm totally aloof from the film world i will just i just will not write any screenplays and if i if i there was another one that i wrote that i, I decided not to take a writing credit on i, I was credited as producer instead because it's less traumatic to be credited as a producer so uh, <laughs> i will never be credited as a writer again but um you know, so I, I am lured back occasionally, you're kind of implying. And one thing that I found frustrating when The Broken Places finally came out as a book, I tried really, I tried for years to get that thing made as a film. And then I turned it into a, a memoir, which it should have been in the first place. But people started saying, you know, this would make a good movie. And, and I felt kind of upset because I thought, Jesus, where were you back in 1977 or whatever when I was trying hard to make this into a film uh it would make a good movie but i i don't really want to do it because you know it's a book and i'm going to leave it as a book i think you know so unfortunately we love to we love talking with you but we do have to wind it down um to our last topic um filmmaking during the pandemic mm. yeah um so orson wells had limited resources when making his later films how do you feel Wells would fare with the technology and resources filmmakers have today? Well, I think he would love it because he died in 85, but you know, vi video was just coming in and he was thinking of doing King Lear for, uh, well, he was going to do it as a feature, but he was going to do the uh, close-ups on video and the long shots on film. And back in the 70s, I interviewed Lee Garms, who was one of the Hollywood's greatest cameramen, and he surprised me by saying he thought video was better for close-ups because it's more three-dimensional than the human face. Yeah, but he said that film is still better for long shots because it's sharper and everything. But anyway, Wells, if he were still around, um, he would he would be making, you know, 10 movies a year at least on uh, digital because it doesn't cost anything. Gary Graver, his cameraman, back around 99 or 98, I said to him, Gary, how, how cheaply could you make a film today? And he thought for a minute and he said, under $1,000. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And can you imagine Orson, you know, he, he would, he would, he could put together a script that he could do for, you know, small amounts of money. Some, some movies take some more money if you're trying to recreate a period like he was going to do a film of the Cradle Rock about his 1930s stage production. And it, that fell through and then somebody else did a version of it. But, um, uh, he would be making all kinds of experimental things and he would be using the medium. I just saw an interview with him from 1955 on the BBC television and they said, what do you think of the TV medium? Do you like it? And, he, and most people were putting it down at the time and he said, no, I love it. I think it's an exciting new medium. And 
but he said i don't think it should be like uh film uh, like little movies it should be its own use its own um powers and its own uniqueness to, and, and he did in 1956 the fountain of youth which is a very daring experimental television show that was too experimental for the networks and it was dumped uh in the summer on a show of on on sold pilots you know but it's a terrific film but it's hard to see now but he was experimenting with the medium and i think today he'd be doing that but if you're a student or a young filmmaker who wants to break in i would i've been sort of urging them uh, you know make a film about the pandemic world we're in most of the scripts i'm getting act as if the pandemic never has happened yet you know they're kind of like the world as it was two years ago people running around normally but i would think you know you could you could make an interesting film even if you don't leave your house and your friends uh, fellow i mean the actors you could get people to you could write a script about people being separated but having a relationship somehow interconnected i mean i could imagine love stories for example i read sometimes the washington post has a column on dating which is kind of fun to read because you see contemporary mores you know and they've had to write about dating in the age of the pandemic and how do people get together you know and that could be a good kind of movie to make like how does a couple get together and form a relationship uh overcome the you know because romantic comedy is a big part of it is overcoming obstacles and one theory of why romantic comedies are not as good as they used to be is that there are fewer obstacles to, for people getting together than there used to be. There used to be more social obstacles and things, but um, now we have the whole pandemic obstacle. So you could write a witty, interesting movie and you don't have to be with your uh, collaborators. They could, you could write the script and direct them long distance and have them act scenes. And I'm not sure how, what kind of story it would be, but you know, I mean, why not try, it, try, to, try to deal with the, with the world as it is now? Although it's changing constantly, I think we'll still be in it for a while. I mean, yeah. who knows, a year or two at least. But, you know, I, I think people should try to make films about the world as it is. Um, uh, you know, that's a challenge and it's an interesting thing. I, I know that in film schools, one of our problems is people who are uh, production students like to be together, obviously, and be on the same soundstage and, or somewhere shooting a film in a group of five or ten people. and that's been hard to do, although we're kind of getting back toward that again since people have been vaccinated and everything. But, uh, I mean, at a certain point, you need to be together when you make a film. It makes it hard. It limits you. But our limitations are part of what art thrives on. As Wells said, you know, um, not having money is, is a stimulus because you have to think of solutions. And he said a lot of young directors are spoiled by having unlimited funding because um, they, they could just throw money at problems but if you don't have a lot of funding you have to think of creative ways to do it and the same with um, social issues social limitations too so I, I by the way i just have to as a complete side note um could you tell the story about uh uh greg toland and orson wells how they had that conversation on the citizen kane about electronic cameras yeah yeah the wells told the story that his great cameraman, Greg Tolan, who was maybe the greatest cameraman who ever lived, he was just an amazing genius. Uh, he volunteered to work with Wells on Kane, 
Wells said Gary Graver and Tolan were the only cameramen who ever called him and said, I'd like to work with you. That's why he hired Gary, because he thought, hey, you know, it worked out well the last time. And uh, Gary called him out of the blue, and he was, you know, you got to be a go-getter in the film world. But Tolan called Wells and said, I want to work with you. And, and Wells said, why? I've never directed a film. And he was kind of hiding the fact that he had experimented a bit. But Tolan said, well, you know, I, I think that since you don't know much about it, you'll come up with interesting solutions. And also, he had seen a play that Wells staged his Julius Caesar, which had spectacular lighting effects. And he, he liked that, and he thought, you know, Wells, Wells would do a good film. So he had worked with John Ford and other people. And so, um, but they were talking on the set of Kane once, and they were talking about all kinds of things. And, and um, one of them said, uh, why does film have to go through the camera? And the other one said, I forget which one said this, but it was a discussion. Uh, I think Tolan said, someday there will be a camera that's all electronic and it'll all just go through a wire into some kind of storage thing and we won't need film at all, you know, because film is, is expensive and it's fragile. And you know, on the other hand, digital can be lost too. That's another problem we're having. We're going to lose a lot of the films that we're making today because they're digital and how do you preserve them? That's a different issue. But but Toland had envisioned uh, digital filmmaking uh, because he was a visionary genius, and, and Wells was too. So they thought of this. And then there was another story that's come up recently because it's been used against Wells. This is how people twist Wells. Um, Wells, when he started shooting Kane, didn't understand screen direction, the concept of, you know, when you have characters moving in one direction and the next shot they have to be moving in the right direction, etc. And the reason he didn't understand it was his his uh, um, Bible for shooting films was Stagecoach, John Ford's film, which he watched for a month. And he told me he watched it every night with a different technician, uh, editor, composer, art director, whatever, to, to, they would talk all the way through it. And But Ford didn't match shots. He violated screen direction all the time. And I've talked to cameraman who worked with him. He did that on purpose so the studios couldn't recut his shots. They had to hold them for the duration that he, he would have a character exit the frame and, and then the next shot the character entered from the wrong direction. And so they couldn't cut on, on motion to shorten and speed things up. They had to hold the shot until somebody cleared the frame and then start the next shot with a clear frame and have the guy enter. But if you look at Ford's films, they're just, they violate screen direction all the time. And so Wells, this is his Bible, he didn't get it. So he said to Tolan, I don't understand. Tolan said, let's stop shooting for the day, we'll go home and I'll explain all this to you. So they went to Wells's house, I guess, and they spent like four hours. Tolan said, I can explain the whole thing about basic filmmaking to you in four hours. <laughs> And Tolan, but yeah, he's a genius. He could do that. And, and Ford later, uh, well, actually around that time, Ford was starting a unit to cover World War II, and he was having weekly training sessions at Fox, and he brought in Tolan to give a 10-minute lecture on cinematography to everybody. And, uh, wow, I'd love to have been there. Uh, but a, a, great, a great thinker could reduce things to the essence, you know, in a short space. And so Tolan spent four hours with Wells explaining everything about the camera, you know, and, and how to put films together. And and he, Wells said later, you know, anybody could learn that stuff in four hours. It's what you do with it that matters, you know. And so when the movie Mank came out, which is a real distortion of Wells, people 
somehow, I don't know why they started remembering the story as an example of Wells' supposed arrogance, that he could, he learned everything in four hours, one afternoon, you know, I'm so, so great, I can, that's not the point of the story. The point was that anybody can learn the basics, but what do you do with those, you know? And um, another great story that Wells told me that I put in one of my books, because nobody knew this story, but I love it. Um, during World War II, Franklin D. Roosevelt gave him a secret mission. He was supposed to go to Princeton and film Albert Einstein explaining the theory of relativity. And, and as you know, we had the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb, and that was the underpinning of all that. And, and But he wanted this uh, film, Roosevelt wanted this film of Einstein to show people. And so he, Wells goes to Princeton with a Mitchell 35 millimeter camera and a, maybe one guy to help him with a couple guys to help with the camera and the sound but Einstein wanted to know he said how does the film synchronize with the sound and so Wells took open the camera and he showed him that the picture comes a little before the sound because you know light travels faster than sound etc and, and here's how the camera syncs it up and he explained it to Einstein who thought about it for a moment and he shook his head and he said it won't work <laughs> I, I love that story. Wells thought that was hilarious. It won't work. And I thought of, you know, Wells's career is full of uh, struggling with the camera. A lot of his films are out of sync. And uh, even on the other side of the wind, we lost a lot of the sound and had to recreate it. And, and um, it doesn't work, you know. And, and I, I ran into many problems when I was projecting films uh, in colleges that um, we'd have sound problems or the film would start burning up in the in the projector and stuff you know it doesn't work very well the technique uh, technical things are kind of the enemy of filmmaking wells once said a quote that i used in class in a production class and everybody kind of looked at me like what 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 he said the camera is a vile machine and it must be conquered i love i love that quote because what counts is what you do to use your tools and make them work in new ways and there's the opposite is when people blame their tools and sometimes students do that oh my computer malfunctioned and lost my script i just had somebody tell me this the other day and uh, i remember there's an old italian saying a bad workman a bad workman blames his tools you know don't don't blame your tools for your problems find a way around the problems if your machine malfunctions get a different machine or improvise some solution you know like that's what that's what the great people do in any field, you know. Especially a film like uh, I feel like film is a technical field, but it's an artistic field at the same time, and it's a kind of a weird hybrid of the two. Ariana, do you have any final questions? Uh, oh man, I don't think so. Well, I feel like we covered so much; it was a lot of fun. You answered all my questions, Professor McBride. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I love talking about Rock and Roll High School and Orson Welles. I couldn't think of two more fun topics. Uh, anytime you want to be back, I love talking about John Ford and Billy Wilder and other people like that, too. But um, That would be wonderful. I've been talking about Wells my whole life, it seems like. And, uh, you know, one thing you learn, I didn't know this, when you start writing a book, there's no end to it because you have to keep revising it, updating it. Certainly with Wells, his career is not over because he did a lot of work which the public hasn't seen yet. And some films that are waiting to be put together like Don Quixote and other films to, to uh, other projects are in an unfinished state. And 
he left fragments of films and, and a lot of them are blocked for legal reasons, et cetera, you know. So his career is, is full of surprises left to be seen. And uh, John Ford, I uh, discovered a lot of World War II films that Ford did at the, that are at the National Archives that nobody bothered to look for, you know. And it's part of what you do as a film, uh, film scholar. I found 10 Frank Capra films at the National Archives that nobody knew about. And uh, they're, they've since been released. And I helped discover that film, The Hearts of Age, the Wells film. I told you about it. Gary Graver told me every six months, Wells would suddenly say, why did Joe have to discover The Hearts of Age? <laughs> you know, he, he was not happy that I found that early uh, student film of his. But it, it shows talent and, and um, originality. Uh, he, he called it a spoof of uh, avant-garde filmmaking. But I think that was kind of a defensive. Uh, maybe it was partly a spoof, but I think he kind of meant it, you know, like Alan Arkish says, I meant it, you know, but um, that's what young filmmakers do sometimes is they, they play with the medium and then they, they, that's how they express themselves. And then they get embarrassed about later. Yeah, and then they get, yeah, I mean, it is. <laughs> I, I can certainly attest to that. Yeah, it's a piece of juvenilia, but I just read that Stanley Kubrick personally burned the negative of uh, Fear and Desire, his first feature, and I was sad to read that because it's not a good film, but, you know, you shouldn't destroy your early work. It's part of who you are. And we make allowances for it because, uh, you know, he made all those great films later, you know. Yeah, it's uh, good to showcase growth. It gives pe people, especially young filmmakers, hope. Yeah, because you look at Dr. Strangelove or 2001, you think, how could I ever do that? But if you show fear and desire, you think, well, I could make a better film than that. You know? <laughs> That's a good lesson. That's, that's a good point. They say sometimes that if you show bad films to students, it's more educational than showing a really good film. Mm -hmm. Because you could say, oh, yeah, they should have done this and they should have done that. But I, I'm, I'm reluctant to take up their time with bad films. Like the worst film I've ever seen is Pearl Harbor. I think it's just so, so horrible. And I wouldn't want to punish them by making them sit, <laughs> sit through it. But maybe I will someday and then we could have an interesting discussion about why it's a bad film. You know? <laughs> but I'm glad to hear you're saying that because it's putting ideas in my mind. So this is, this is how you learn from younger filmmakers and people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Uh, Thank you for having me. It's been fun talking to both of you. Please, yes. uh, we would love to have you back on the program. Great. Anytime. I'm here. I'm your guy. And I'm really grateful to Andrew for all of his uh, help to me as a teacher and, and inspiration and being a wonderful student. And I, I know that both of you are going to go on to great careers. I'm glad you're doing a podcast. I think that's a terrific thing to do to, to make your presence known in the world. I, you know, I tell people that the film world is so hard to make your name and you have to do something to get people to know who you are. Like Hitchcock and Spike Lee are kind of good role models. They both made people know who they were and they appeared in their own films and, and uh, made themselves uh, kind of stars in a way. And you can do that with um, podcasts and then films or whatever you do. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on, and I really appreciate your support and generosity throughout uh, our, our time of having known each other, and I'm really proud to call you a friend. Thank you. Thank you. You're my friend, too, and, and, and you, too. It's great to meet you. And, <laughs> yeah, and, now you have a new one. <laughs> yeah, Ariana, it's great to be your friend. So, yeah, we, that's part of that's, – that's the good thing about the film world is you meet people and you become friends, and uh, sometimes you don't see them for a few years, but you can yeah. – have wonderful experiences working with people. That's that is the fun part of filmmaking. Even when there are there are a lot of things that are difficult, but the fun part is what you remember. You know, yeah. fantastic. Okay, good seeing you. 
fantastic. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Good seeing you. Bye-bye. Listeners, I hope it was as great to listen to Professor McBride as it was for us to talk to him. Once again, Joseph McBride's upcoming books are Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, coming in October of this year, as well as an updated edition of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, coming in 2022. You can pre-order the former on Columbia University Press's website and the latter on Amazon. Uh, Ariana, uh, I think I can speak for us when I say uh, that uh, we'd like to thank Professor McBride for his time, and we hope they'll join us again on the podcast. Oh, yeah, I sure hope so. He's amazing. He has so many great, great stories. Oh, my gosh. Great stories, great knowledge base, passion to boot. Oh, rub off on me, please. <laughs> exactly. Listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to shoot us an email at independentcareerstudios at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please write a review and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created by myself and Ariana. I edited this episode. My name is Andrew Gentile. This has been an Independent Career Studios production. Thank you.